Thanks for tuning in to the Middle School Ministry Podcast for Cornerstone Chapel. Let's head into the service and see what Pastor Turner has to share this week. Let's open our Bibles up to John chapter 8 this morning. It's, I think, page 756 in the Black Bibles. I'm not positive of that. Don't quote me. What is it? 757? Okay. 757. Well, last week in John chapter 7, we, uh, we, uh, Jesus was teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he went up into the, the temple, and, and he was teaching in the temple. And uh, they were questioning Jesus, like, how are you teaching with such authority? You've never even you know, sat under anybody, you've never gone to school, you're unlearned. And they came, at, they came after Jesus from his education, they came after Jesus from where he was born and who he was related to. And uh, we learned that you know, the scriptures give us a very clear representation of where Messiah was going to come from, uh, and not only where he was going to come from, but the family he would, he would be uh, directly related to, and how Jesus fulfilled all those things, the requirements of being Messiah, which is the Savior. And so uh, Jesus was doing those things. In regards to that, the Pharisees were very unhappy with Jesus. They were not happy with Jesus because he was gathering crowds. Uh, people were following him. Uh, he was performing miracles, and just a lot of uh, really cool things were happening because of the ministry that Jesus was, was, was having on the people of Israel. And the Pharisees did not like it. They wanted to remain in control of the people and from a religious standpoint, and they did not like what Jesus was doing. Therefore, they sought to arrest him. They tried to arrest him at, when he was teaching there, but no one laid a hand on him. The scriptures tell us in chapter 7 that it was because his time had not yet come. And that was in reference to the time that he would be arrested when he would be uh, handed over and then he would be crucified. So we saw that uh, chapter 7 encouraged us in in those things very clearly. Now we move on to chapter 8. So we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 11. We're going to pray, and then we'll get into this Bible study this morning. So let's start in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this to question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus went down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's a personal word that you have for each one of us this morning. And We think of how each one of our lives represents so many different things here in this room, even now. But yet, Lord, intimately, you know every detail of our lives. That there's nothing hidden from you, that everything lays open before you, Lord God. And yet you love us and you continue to move in behalf of our lives. 
And so, Father, this morning as we read your word, we ask that your living word would, would move in our lives and that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would reveal your truth to us. Lord, we want to commit our Bible study time to you this morning so that we may know you more clearly. And so, Father, we ask for your help in this. We ask for your blessing in this time. I ask for your blessing on each one of the lives here in this room, Lord, mine included. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a story that's fairly well known if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, especially the Gospel of John. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And uh, Jesus is teaching here in the, in the temple. It's early in the morning. He's up on the Mount of Olives, and it's early in the morning. So it says before dawn, he makes his way up into the temple. So he's probably one of the first ones there. He, uh, he's, he's there, and what happens is, is the Pharisees bring uh, this woman to Jesus. Now, as I said before, uh, they were seeking to uh, in some way trap Jesus and uh, find uh, some kind of wrongdoing in him, some false teaching, some, some mo- motive of him that would be wrong so that they can arrest him, and they can at the very least put him in jail to silence him, or at the very best, their hopes would be to kill him, to completely silence his voice. That was their desire, that they were seeking in every way to, uh, to, to cause Jesus to uh, be quieted. And so they hatched this plan to bring a woman who's caught in adultery before the Lord and before Jesus. And they, they basically bring her and cast her at his feet. And then they bring the accusation to him. Now, the Mosaic law, the, the law of Moses, says in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy that any woman caught in adultery, the penalty of such crime would be that death would be, uh, would, death would be the penalty for any such crime. And so uh, it's a pretty heavy accusation. It's a pretty dramatic response to that accusation as well. The issue was this, though. It wasn't that just because someone said, hey, you're in adultery, you, you need to go to court now, you broke the law. It was that they had to have two or three witnesses, they, it had to be verified, and it was a whole trial process. It was a pretty big deal. Now, the manner in which they would uh, execute the death penalty in Israel at this time uh, hadn't been done in a very long time, number one, because Roman rule was over the nation of Israel, right? Caesar had taken over the known Western, uh, Eastern world at that point, and he was in control of Israel as well. And so... Uh, they weren't permitted to exercise the death penalty in Israel without the Roman authorities uh, granting of this. If you guys remember, when Jesus was arrested at the crucifixion time, at, at his arrest, and his trials, that he had to go before Pilate as well as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the Jewish law. The, uh, before, he went before Pilate as the Gentile law, and he, they were seeking the death penalty for Jesus saying that he was God. Uh, Blasphemy was what they were accusing him of. They could not just say, the Roman law says you've committed blasphemy, now you have the death penalty, Jesus, and then do that. That's also why he was nailed to a cross. The crucifixion was not an execution tool used by by the Jews. It was used by the Romans. It was a Gentile uh, device of execution. And Jesus was committed through a Gentile device of execution. The ways that the Jews would commit, uh, wow, commit execution when it came to law-breaking, uh, typically for uh, adultery, was one of several ways. One would be that they would drive a sword through uh, her stomach. 
Another would be that they would drop her into a small pit and they would drop, roll a large stone over top of her, crushing her. The other would be that they would uh, grab stones about the size of cinder blocks and throw them upon her, uh, killing her. And so this was the way, yeah, pretty horrible. Um, not exactly the way you want to go. Very painful. Like I said, it was very rare that this would occur. In fact, I couldn't find any recorded case when I was doing research on it, that it has actually happened. But nonetheless, the law said that it could happen and, and that it should happen if it was proven. And so you have this situation here where this woman is thrown at his feet. It's a very heavy allegation. It's not something that's just lightly. Believe me, in our culture today, uh, with the divorce rate at above 60%, adultery is a common thing, isn't it? It's not surprising to us when we hear of an adulterous affair, when we hear of someone cheating on their spouse. It's not surprising. You turn on the television and you watch you know, Entertainment Tonight or you know, Access Hollywood or TMZ, any of these you know, shows that spotlight Hollywood, you see that it's rampant in Hollywood, the people that we watch on movies. and that. The, the value of marriage has been lowered dramatically in our culture. Divorce is a common and almost expected thing. It's not surprising to anyone anymore when we hear of a divorce. That was not the case back then. Marriage was held in high view. Uh, I guess so when the death penalty at stake if you cheat on your spouse. But the reality is, is that in order to accuse someone of this death penalty, there had to be several witnesses to it. And, you know, adultery just isn't something that happens, you know, uh, out in the open typically. It's a, it's a hidden private sin. It's something that's usually very quiet and discreet and very few people know about other than the parties involved. So for them to know about this was peculiar in and and of itself. But they bring this against Jesus, and they bring her to Jesus, and they're seeking to to test Jesus to find out what he's going to say. They want to find out if he's going to say, yeah, listen, this woman is an adulteress. She needs to be uh, stoned. She needs to be put to death. Or they're looking for him to say, hey, you know, that's a harsh penalty. She's uh, She's not that bad. Let her go. Because if, she, if he goes, she needs to be stoned to death, then what they're doing is they're going to accuse him of coming against the Roman rule, which was against the law in itself, if he came against the Roman rule. And so they would say that he was a rebel or leading a, an, an insurgents against the Roman Empire. And on the other hand, if he says that it's not that big of a deal, she does, she need to let her go, then he's being moralistically weak and he's making light of God's word. That's why I want to pay attention real briefly to Jesus' response to this opportunity here. They're trying to catch him in a, in, a, in a trick. They're trying to deceive him and bring him into some kind of accusation. And he doesn't say a word about her to them. Look at what it says here. It says, uh, look in verse, uh, in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, it says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And in verse 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this is interesting. First of all, he writes in the sand something. We don't know what it is. It could be, I don't know. I mean, it's ne- we're never told what it is. It could be some scripture verses out of the Old Testament. He could be writing their own personal sins out without telling them who they are, because there's a group of them, you know, and, and they're seeing their sins being written in the sand and realizing, oh, um, <laughs> he knows what I've done. This isn't good. We don't know what it is. But nonetheless, when he does do that, he doesn't say anything to them. The only thing he does is he makes a statement about any one of you without sin, throw the first stone. 
which is a pretty significant statement. Now, a lot of people like to use this in defense of themselves when they're caught in some sort of uh, you know, wrongdoing and someone accuses you or, or brings it up to your attention. You're like, oh, really? what have you done? You're worse than me. Throw the first stone, you know, hypocrite, right? <laughs> you know, they could be completely right, but that's what we do, right? We use it against uh, our enemies, you know, or people that are accusing us of something. That wasn't the case here. Jesus wasn't using this against them. He was using it actually to bring light of what the reality was. Now, interestingly enough, when I was talking about the ways that they would exercise the death penalty in Jewish law, the eyewitness that brought the accusation, that brought everything to light in the court, would actually be the person that would actually commit the execution act. And they did this for a purpose. In other words, if you witness someone that was doing something that was warranting the penalty of death according to the law, and you brought them to court and they were found guilty, and they decided, okay, the penalty of death is that they're going to have a spear or a, a sword thrust through their gut, you would be the person that would have to actually do that. I know, it's crazy, huh? And the reason they did this is so that the person bringing the accusation would understand the gravity of the responsibility of what they're accusing that person of. That they would have part in, in how it was going to play out. That it wasn't just simple, hey, I'm accusing you of this. You're going to actually be the one that's going to put your hand to that sword and drive it in. Or you're going to be the one that's going to roll that stone into that pit or throw the first stone upon that person. It's a big deal. And Jesus is kind of alluding to that as he says that to them. That's where that comes from, actually. He's like, guess what? You're going to throw the first stone if, if you have no sin. And so he, he, first of all, disarms them in that way. But if you notice... It doesn't end there because then he continues to write in the sand and they slowly one by one, they leave her, they leave him and they go upon their way as if it never happened. Now, we do know that this woman was caught in adultery, that it was legit. She had done something wrong because Jesus affirms it because when he says to her in verse 11, he says, leave, you know, go now, leave and and leave your life of sin. In other words, don't do this any longer. He's not saying that she didn't do anything wrong. He was looking at the accusers. And this brings me to an interesting uh, understanding of the scriptures for us today as believers, because we all in here, hopefully all of us have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's inevitable that if you have a genuine uh, relationship with the Lord, that you're going to sin at some point. And when you sin at some point, uh, the guilt and the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will come upon you to affirm that your, uh, your behavior is not pleasing to the Lord. And this will happen to any believer. And at this junction in a believer's life, when you're feeling the conviction of sin in your own life, you have an opportunity to either go to the Lord or to go away from the Lord. Now, Satan would desire to condemn you in your sin and drive you away from the Lord. And we'll get on this topic a little bit later, um, a little bit more detailed. But God would desire that we would go to him in the midst of our sin to seek forgiveness, to be restored, and to be set right. In light of that, there's three particular ways that Satan works in the life of a believer in the midst of our lives today when it comes to the issue of sin. The first one is is that he brings our sins up to God as an accuser. Satan will go to the the Lord on... (laughs) to accuse you of rebelling against God. And the sad truth is, is that most of the times he's completely right. We have done something to warrant him bringing an accusation against us. Now, in scripture, in the book of Revelation, Satan is labeled as the accuser of the brotherhood, or the brotherhood, or the brethren, 
accuser of the brethren. In fact, it says in Revelation 12, 10, it says, for the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God day and night. That was in reference to Satan. And he was saying, I saw him hurled down. In other words, God will not entertain the accusations as though they're true. God knows already where you stand with him. So when you have sinful behavior in your life, it's not a surprise to God. He knows completely and he's 100% aware of it. In fact, we are the ones that usually get askew and, and misunderstand what's happening when, we're, when we are involved in rebellion with the Lord. We think that God may not notice it at all because maybe something doesn't happen right away. But the reality is it hinders a lot of things. Spiritually speaking, your prayers are hindered in a great way due to sinful behavior in your life. When I stand against the Lord in my behavior, my prayers are hindered. They're hindered. Even if they're well-meaning, even if my prayers are well-intentioned, I need to be right with the Lord myself first before I can go to the Lord on behalf of anyone else. And so that's just a little nugget to tuck away. But these Pharisees were coming to Jesus and they were accusing this woman and they were using the law, the word of God, the Ten Commandments. They were using God's word against her. And Satan will oftentimes accuse us before the Father. It's nothing new. It's something that he's been doing from the beginning. In the Old Testament, in the book of Job, he comes to God in the opening chapters of, of Job, in the, in the beginning sequences of the book, and he says that, that Satan comes before the Lord, and he says, have you considered your servant Job? And, and God's like, yeah, Job's awesome. He's a righteous man. You know, there's nobody like him right now. And Satan's like, oh, yeah, well, let me have a few days with him, and I'll have him cursing you before you know it. That's a paraphrase. And basically, he asks God to test Job so that he can get Job to curse God. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus and Peter walking together, talking. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, Satan has come to me and he desires to sift you. But take heart, Peter, I've prayed for you. In other words, Satan did not like the activity in the relationship between Jesus and Peter. And he was trying to sift Peter to get him to turn against God, to somehow rebel against the purposes of God for his own life. And Jesus says, take heart, man, I've prayed for you. It's going to be okay. Now, look, later on, Peter literally denies Jesus three separate times uh, in, during the crucifixion, his trial and all that. You guys know the story, right? But the Lord restores him after the resurrection. He restores him. Not only does he restore him, but he greatly anoints Peter. He uses him to write uh, tremendous parts of the New Testament, and he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So uh, even so great that he ends up giving his life uh, hanging on an upside-down cross, as a, as a form of martyrdom for Jesus. He was restored to the point of where he was willing to die for Jesus. Now, to going from rejecting him to willing to die for him is a huge, there's a huge distance between those two things, and only God can make that change in a person's heart and life. And that's what I love about it, because Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. That's a great thing. Did you know on this note that when Satan comes to accuse you and I before the Father in heaven, that Jesus stands as an intercessor for you and me, that he stands praying to the Father all day long on your behalf and on on my behalf? How great is that? You have the one who has the ear of the Father, the greatest, the loudest, praying for you and praying for me. How awesome is that to know that Jesus is working for you, that God, he's got God's ear for your greater interest. How awesome is that? 
And so he's praying for you and he's praying for me this morning. The second thing that we see here is that he uses the word to try and condemn us. And I touched on this briefly on the last point, but this woman was guilty according to the law. She was guilty. She had committed a sin. She was guilty as charged. And, you know, the, the word is going to work against us. It's going to say, you know, this is what the law talks about. When, when Romans, the book of Romans talks about the law, how it simply shows us what right and wrong is. It has no way of setting you free from the wrong that you've done. That's the tragedy of the law. And when people live in legalism, they think that if I behave a certain way, I'm gonna be accepted by God. Listen, you cannot behave good enough for God to willingly accept you. It's a grace that he's bestowed upon you without merit. You can't earn it. It's given to you free as a gift. You can't purchase it. You can't be good enough. That's why Jesus did it for us. Okay, I can't drive that home enough. And the word when it talks about things that are right and wrong in the eyes of the Lord, they stand to show us right and wrong for our own knowledge so that we can choose the Lord. It's kind of like a stop sign or a a speed limit sign on the road. The law serves to show us right right and wrong. The speed limit says the speed limit is 25 miles an hour. The speed limit sign can't stop you from speeding, can it? It can't stop you from breaking the law. You can either go faster if you want. It's, it's up to you as your choice on how you decide to behave. It simply shows you right from wrong. And that's what the Ten Commandments do. And that's the grace of the Lord, is that he fulfilled what we could never do. That's what I love about the grace of God. And this is what we were talking about on Wednesday night when we talked about how the grace of God teaches us to say no to all ungodliness when we were talking about worldliness in our lives and how we want to combat against that. And God's given us his grace His grace has forgiven you from the very things that offend God. Your heart should be to turn and say, I've been forgiven from these things that are an offense to God. Now I want to live in a way that will never offend him because he's forgiven me. He chose to forgive. So how do you want to live in response to that? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Beautiful verse. And so the Pharisees were trying to use the law to work against it, to trap Jesus. And this is ultimately what it is. which is my third point, is that Satan is ultimately interested in defaming God. You know, you are simply a fallout for Satan's rebellion against God. When a person gives their life to Jesus, they now become property of God. He purchases you. That's what we're told in Scripture. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. You belong to God. In light of the fact that you are property of God, Satan hates God. Therefore, anything that belongs to God, he hates as well. The interesting thing is that God chooses to use you and he chooses to use me for his purposes on the earth to expand his kingdom, crushing out the deeds of darkness, which Satan seeks to establish a kingdom of darkness. And so we are working against the purposes of Satan. We are working for the purposes of God. Satan desires to snuff out God. He's in rebellion to God. We are become the target as a result. Now, he hates God. And as a result, because of Christ in us, he hates us. In the same way that the Pharisees were looking really to trick Jesus, they wanted Jesus. This woman was simply a means to an end. She was a means to an end for them. They had a a plan to get Jesus trapped in some way so they could silence his voice and stop his work of what he was accomplishing. In the same way in your life and my life, 
We are a means to an end. Satan hates God, and because we belong to him, as a result, he hates us. And so we need to understand that, that he's trying to defame God. Now listen, when you stand in rebellion to God and his word, and you have willful sin in your life, you're not doing God any favors, by the way, because we are a witness to the Lord for the world. We're a witness to the world. They see your life, and you say, I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus, praise God, hallelujah, I sing on Sunday and Wednesday, and do all this stuff, but then you live a life of rebellion, you're not being a great witness for the Lord. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry, and it's pretty simple, and we all know that. But when you do that, you simply give Satan ground to defame God's name. He uses you to look bad for the rest of the world, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to put ourselves in that situation. But I want to bring up this last point. Because in the most basic way, we are exactly like this woman who's brought before Jesus. The Bible says that she was caught in adultery. Now, adultery in the Old, in the Old Testament has symbolism uh, in many ways. For instance, in the book of Hosea, he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. The nation of Israel, when they would turn to idols and they would turn to other gods or they would turn to rebellion from God's word, God would confess through prophets that they were committing adultery on him. There was a covenant between God and Israel. There's a covenant between a believer in the New Testament, a Christian, and God. Now, and when we turn our back in sin, we are committing spiritual adultery on the Lord, just like Israel would in the Old Testament. We are, after all, the bride of Christ. That's what the collective body of Christ is, is the bride of Christ. We are his bride, and he's going to return for us. In many ways, big ways, small ways, but many ways, we are like this woman cast at Jesus' feet. We all have some sin in our life. We all will sin. We will all find ourselves in the wrong side of righteousness. Every one of us. But I love the way that Jesus handles this because when you and I have been in an in a act of rebellion to God, whether it's presently or whether it will be down the road or whether it's something that's happened in the past, I love that Jesus says, where are your accusers? And, and he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He uses the word condemn. Now listen, as I, started, I said earlier on in my message that when we are in the midst of sin, we have a choice between running to God or away from God. There is a force that comes in from the enemy to try and drive you and continue in a course away from God, and it's condemnation, it's guilt. Satan would love to deceive you into thinking that you have no right to go back to God. You have been so horrible, he will never, ever forgive you. That's what he would desire for you. When the reality is, is that we need to find ourselves like this woman simply laying at the feet of Jesus, saying, we are accused, we have done wrong, but we need you more, Jesus. He says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. The greatest prayer that someone in rebellion can say is, forgive me, Lord. That's the most powerful prayer that they can begin and say. They can set themselves right with the Lord again just by a simple prayer, turning their heart. But don't let your heart deceive you. Don't let the condemnation of, the, of your behavior keep you away from the Lord. Let it run to the Lord in freedom, knowing that he's going to forgive you. Don't abuse the grace, but receive it and know that God has a greater plan. I tell you what, 
Jesus' words in verse 11, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. That can be the pattern. Run to the Lord, receive forgiveness, then leave your life of sin. Change your behavior as a result of the forgiveness of your sins. We all have that opportunity. If you walk with the Lord long enough, you're going to do something that displeases the Lord. It's just inevitable. We, we live in a fallen, broken life. This world, the flesh, it goes contrary to the Lord. It's inevitably going to happen. How will you respond? Let's pray.